Hi everyone, welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host Nate, along with my co-host Matt. Hey. And today we have the special honor of interviewing Mr. Paul Bonnar. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Hi Matt. Hi Nate. How are you guys? Doing Great, good. how are you? So Paul, tell us how you got into reptiles. From as early as I can remember, I had this God-given natural ability with animals. Um, my mom and dad used to say that around the age of two years old, when I was very, very young, I could catch butterflies with my hands, mainly monarchs. And I could also catch birds with my hands. I was skilled enough and quiet enough to be able to catch and release uh, small birds. And uh, they, they were always very encouraged uh they never uh stamped out my fascination with animals so from a very very early age i i had a uh uh interest and then particularly in the the reptiles i remember uh, being in preschool so i must have only been you know maybe maybe five five years old and we went on a little nature hike in preschool and the teacher said, be careful of walking, you might step on a turtle. And I, I just remember being so excited to see a, a turtle at, at that early, early age. They, they fostered the, the interest. Um, it, it didn't really start in reptiles, it really started in the birds. And like many kids, I had a parakeet. Uh, that, that actually, my older brother, it was my older brother bought it, but the parakeet was a little green budgie and it bonded to me and my parents said Matt you can get something else uh, this is Paul's bird and and so I, I had a parakeet on my shoulder um, in kindergarten in fact right now I've got the door locked because I have a I have a collectus parrots in the house the males are beautifully green birds they're about the size of a crow the females are uh, intense red and blue they look completely dimorphic meaning the sexes look different and this little parrot knows that I'm in here talking and he wants to join, but uh, you can't uh, you can't understand a word I'll say if, if he starts getting going because he'll, he'll want to dominate the conversation with his little chatter. Did, um, did I, I, something I've noticed with a lot of herpetologists is dinosaurs had a role in getting them into that. Yeah. Did that have any kind of role in getting you into it? It, it did. It, it had a huge role. And, and when I was little... You know, dinosaurs weren't, you know, they were still the, the lethargic animals that lived in swamps and, and ate uh, vegetation. And, and the Tyrannosaurus rex still, you know, looked like it was uh, uh, walking on high heels. I had, I had all the dinosaur coloring books. I even paid, uh, if I, w- I was raised in a, in a Catholic school, and I remember some of my friends would, would have dinosaur coloring books. I would even give them my lunch money to, to have them rip out pages of their dinosaur books that they had colored uh, so yes it, it, it started with the interest in reptiles um, very early on the first physical animal I was able to uh, have was a bird was a parrot and yes dinosaurs were always uh, fascinating we went to uh, the zoo quite often when I was little and the Natural History Museum here in Cleveland so yeah, it, it was it was something that not only did I have an innate interest in, but I was fortunate to have the experience making 
things almost the perfect um, catalyst. One, one other small thing was there used to be a company called Butterflies and Things up in Parma, and the world's largest insect dealers lived in Parma, or lived in Ohio, in Parma, Ohio. And I would go early on to their store and get, um, my, my mom and dad would take me back in 1982. I've got some pictures I could show you, or some insects I can show you back from 1982. They're these giant phasmid walking in sticks from Malaysia. And for my birthdays and holidays, like Christmas, I would get a different gigantic insect that was uh, pinned on a uh, case in a frame from all over the world. So from a very, very early age, my imagination exploded with faraway places, with animals, with books from the library. And at the time, we would go to our local library, there'd be two books on snakes, maybe one or two books on reptiles, and that was and that was really it. So it, there wasn't a lot of material uh, back in the early 1980s that you could find at, at a local library. Huh. And what um, another thing too is a lot of like people who who are into like snakes and stuff like that. Like their first snake was a garter snake. Was what was your first snake? My first snake was uh, a uh, corn snake. It was an uh, okay. Okay corn snake. Uh, back in 19, I think it was late 1970s, 1976, there was an organization, and remember, this is all before the internet. Uh, this is when you picked up a telephone and you had a phone book and you, you dialed somebody. This is even before uh, we had voicemail or, or phone recording machines. So back in, in the early, early 80s and the late 70s, was an organization called NOAA, and that was the reptile club in the country, and, and, and you can almost argue in the world. It was called the Northern Ohio Association of Herpetologists. I lived in Lakewood. The NOAA meetings were in Rocky River, which were two, two cities over. You could get to this nature center in about 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and once a month on the second Wednesday of every month, they would have a NOAA meeting. My mom found out about that when I was little. She enrolled me in NOAA, and I was going to these meetings, you know, at the age of six and seven. I grew up. I grew up in the reptile community when it was very much at that time in its infancy. Wow, that's really cool, actually. So, what do you do now then? So now, uh, I, I hold several degrees. I, I went to school for a heck of a long time. And I've got uh, degrees in business and biology, um, science degrees in, in chemistry. Uh, full time, full time. I, I actually work work in more in, in the chemistry field, uh, more more in the sciences. But um, but I still maintain a uh, uh, somewhat professional uh, endeavor outside of that. And I'm I'm in a handful of things that keep me very busy i i don't watch much television unless it's unless it's uh on youtube because it's somewhat educational but my credentials today i'm a i'm a zoological association of america accredited facility and that that's uh mainly for the crocodiles and the snakes and the lizards that i have here 
I was invited into the IUCN Crocodile Specialist Group, and that's a worldwide organization that manages and kind of looks at the populations of certain endangered species, and it helps monitor and govern the, the international trade and uh, science behind endangered species. So there's an IUCN World Conservation Commission rhino group. There's a eagle group. There's a tiger group. I'm in the crocodile group, and there, there's roughly a, a little bit over 300 of us worldwide. We meet once every uh, couple years and talk about different aspects of crocodile management. Uh, along with the, the zoo organization and the crocodile organization, um, there's not much of me left after that and a, and a, a, a wife and a daughter and, a, and another job. Uh, so I, I have uh, really two, two lives and, uh, and I, I am one busy person. When I travel um, on certain projects, I've, I've actually got uh, two part-time employees that come out and help, help take care of the, the animal collection here. Cool. Um, actually, I do want to. I want to continue with that, but I, want, I do want to go back to because um, you said you you grew up like with the reptile industry when it was still in its infancy and stuff. And um, I was wondering yep. if you could like because it's changed so much since then to, to what it is now. It does. I was wondering if you could go over that like change yeah, we, what it was like back then. We we saw the explosion. Uh, we knew the explosion was coming. <clears throat> back when I started, there was a. Um, NOAA, Northern Ohio Association, white pages. And it listed everybody who was a member of NOAA. It listed what their interests were. So if they were interested in king snakes, tricolored snakes, or if they were interested in tortoises, if they were interested in general, would be everything. And I recall there probably was maybe 1,550 up to about 1,000 names, depending on the year. And you could call you could call anybody in there and talk reptiles. So a lot of the, the zoo curators were in there. A lot of the private sector was in there. It was uh, it was very professional in that once a month they would have a speaker give a presentation. So for example, uh, Pete Tolson from the Toledo Zoo would give his presentation on Caribbean boas that he's working on. They would fly they flew up tom crutchfield i met tom crutchfield in 1984 i was in the fourth grade he had given he had just traveled around the world he had just given a talk uh at noah and he was back from thailand um on a on a buying trip i, I met him in 1984. Uh, there were other people that would uh be the first to breed certain species in captivity uh, i remember uh one of the bird uh Langerdorf, uh, who was breeding the tegus and the lizards, um, I believe it was in Alabama. He came and spoke. Late later, I became vice president of NOAA uh, for a few years, off and on. However, uh, things as as the internet kind of took over back in the early two thousands, the the meetings started to kind of dwindle. It, it was almost like the internet kind of spread the information out, and the the people weren't quite going to NOAA as, as they used to be, there were some internal politics then that kind of fueled uh, the end of NOAA. And, and like anything, you really don't see the reptile clubs all that much dominating the industry. What, what you kind of have is you kind of have a dilution of knowledge. You have a lot of interest, but you have a dilution of real 
deep knowledge and and that's kind of a little bit unfortunate so back then it was people that were more focused and dedicated on the science and the biology of these animals where whereas today a lot of keepers don't do field work they don't go out in the field they don't understand how these animals exist in the wild they see them at the shows without a real in-depth knowledge of course now now the shows have you know i mean the shows and, and the interest in reptiles has exponentially grown since then but at, in those days you could you could list the amount of people interested in reptiles by the hundreds not not today like you, you have the tens of thousands the um i think that's interesting because it's like um i noticed that a lot in like um with just people who own dogs like people i i know people who get like dogs and they have no idea anything about the dog breed and no. and because certain dog breeds just are different from others and you have to take care of them differently and right. and they um they get dog breeds that are not like i have a friend who lives in an apartment and got a, a border collie mm-hmm. it's just not a very good apartment dog right you know and i think so many people get um, animals in general, but like dogs, reptiles, as you're saying, without really knowing about that animal and how it exists in the wild and, and the way it thinks. Because like, not all dogs think alike. Just like dogs and reptiles don't think alike, and not all reptiles think alike. And you just kind of have to. It's if you if you don't know how to read it, then you're not going to be as successful. That's right. And and Noah was founded by two scientists. It it was founded by Dr. Marty Rosenberg a herpetologist at Case Western Reserve University, a biologist, a PhD. Marty Marty taught biology at Case Western. He taught herpetology. He was the founder of NOAA. He had a very scientific approach to it. The co-founder of NOAA was Chuck Vorchek, who was the senior education specialist at the Cleveland Metro Parks Zoo and also a member of Mensa. In fact, I, here I have thousands of slides and hundreds of photos of Chuck Vorchek's zoo collection pictures that date back, actually he, he collected them early, as early on as the late 1800s. I've got over 100 years of vintage zoo pictures from all over the world. It, it's terrific. I've got to uh, start a book on that one of these days so I can share this with the world. But um, so you had you had these two guys, these two guys that were were thinking, you, you know, how do we understand these animals better? Not necessarily. Uh, how do we breed the color? And color morphs were un, unheard of. Uh, the first color morph we saw was the albino corn snake, uh, which sold for five six hundred dollars uh, for a little one. The second kind of color morph I remember. Now I'm sure there, there's discrepancy, but from my perspective, the second color morph was an albino California king snake. And then and then there were some odd morphs here and there. Occasionally you'd see an albino turtle or or an albino. Um, different type of snake until the albino Burmese pythons came from uh, Tom Crutchfield and Bob Clark and that was like in the mid 80s I want to say like 1986 1987 and that albino Burmese python sold was brought over from I believe Thailand sold for a huge amount of money Uh, well Tom Crutchfield leased it out I think to Bob Clark if I'm not mistaken he bred it and and then started selling the, the babies. I've got a little crocodile here chirping. Um, he's not he's not used to me talking, but um, but but the albino Burmese python really was the catalyst for making money on reptiles in terms of color morphs. Before that, 
we would have these NOAA meetings and newsletters. They, they'd publish a newsletter after the meeting. You had, a, you had a small classified section of about a page and a half. It was mostly emerald tree boas, matamata turtles, tortoises, iguanas, uh, Nile monitors. It, it wasn't really anything real fancy, and, and certainly nothing really hit over $1,000. Uh, most of these snakes, like eastern indigo snakes, were $350. Texas indigo snakes were $250. But um, but really, after, after the albino Burmese python came into the market, that, that's where we really saw the change. And... People started making money, and, and then later the albino ball pythons and, and so forth. So um, you do both breeding and research, correct? Yeah, so I, I, I have nine species of crocodiles. I have okay. uh, several hundred snakes and uh, a variety of tortoises, from uh, the radiated tortoises on upwards to, um, to the Galapagos. About half of my, most of my crocodiles, my larger crocodiles, are outsourced in the zoo community, and um, the ba- the babies are here. Speaking of the zoo community, cool. have um, you ever worked in a zoo before? I did. Um, I was officially the longest intern at the Cleveland Zoo. I think I was there for five years <laughs> through college. I um, worked in the in the rainforest. Mm-hmm. Cleveland Zoo is one portion. It's a great zoo. It's uh, got different management now, and they've they've really added big mammals, which I get a little bit bored with. At one time, you had all sorts of species of birds and and all the variety of the little things. I find that much more interesting than bulldozing everything and having three elephants. But but <laughs> they have a terrific zoo still, nonetheless, um, world class. It takes a whole day to get through the zoo, and on, on the other side of the parking lot is a rainforest building that was built in the late 80s for a cost of 30 million dollars and it's an acre on top of an acre as far as internally so it it takes about an hour and a half to two hours to get through the rainforest i was taking care of all of the animals on the first level and that included a beautiful uh pair of american crocodiles the male was stunning he was from columbia he was a bright yellow and black crocodile, very unusual, but it was beautiful. We bred, we bred the American crocodiles for a couple of years. I was taking care of bushmasters and uh, fertile ants, uh, matamata turtles, uh, iguanas, Fiji Island iguanas, Parsons chameleons. So this, this was early in my school days, in my college days, and I can remember being at the zoo on the weekends and kids, I didn't have necessarily a uh, like a wild college life. I went, I was living at home and I would go to school. But I remember I was thinking, man, I am so fortunate. Here I am, you know, 18 years old and I'm raising two baby Komodo dragons from hatchling to six feet. Uh, and and I, I look at those days as, as really where I gained the structure of thinking how to keep animals in captivity. So a lot of a lot of keepers that are that are private do very very well. They do much better than many zoos. Um, they're focused. They, they they focus on certain species of animals and and very successfully breed those. What sometimes you don't see in the private sector is you, you don't see a reason why they're keeping things. Are they keeping things just because it's a hobby? Well, that that's that's great. I mean that I still do that today. But but think of keeping animals as 
part of the equation instead of the full equation. So have a conservation outreach program. Do something for the animals in the wild. And if you can, be part of that conservation program. Actively take some vacation time and go catch crocodiles in the Solomon Islands and sea turtles and tag, uh, you know, tag lizards in, in Indonesia. Second, uh, do some outreach. You, you know, go to a local school every now and then or a nature club or nature uh, facility and, and give a talk on, on animals. Uh, my, my aunts were um, school teachers. I would give talks to uh, kids that were severely handicapped and uh, let them pet, pet animals and snakes. And uh, what, a, what a warm feeling to have five, 600 children a day have an experience of uh, handling a, a Burmese python, which is about the nicest snake you could ever find as an adult. Burmese pythons are so, so reliable, so gentle. Uh, that's what the zoos used to use. Every snake charmer used to use a Burmese python because it's just a nice, mellow snake that, that can take a bunch of kids handling it, and it, it doesn't care. So uh, so you have outreach programs. You have your conservation. Uh, you, you may be able to fund uh, another researcher if you can't. Uh, a lot of these times, these researchers are on a shoestring budget. And and then and then look at your collection, and what are you, what are you keeping, and why are you keeping it? I keep animals that are, for the most part, endangered, and uh, we work with zoos and SSP, species survival plans, to further enhance the captive population of these species. So if things happen in the wild where the population goes down, uh, you, you have, you have a, a, basically an arc in captivity that can be used. So... So do you... What, what made you... Um leave the, the, the zoo world and everything, or do you still work with them a little bit? I, I, I do. I have one foot in the zoo world and one foot out of the zoo world. There's there's not a lot of people that do that, but um, I have uh, I, I have a lot of animals inside the zoos, and, and those are AZA accredited zoos, American Association um, accreditation zoos. Those are usually the public zoos, the larger zoos. I have a lot of animals in private zoos, in smaller zoos, and uh, because of when you when you breed croc, crocs in particular, or those red boas, um, they, they make good display animals, or or the animal is rare enough that that a zoo would would like to pair up their animal. So I keep uh, what I would say. I have a large collection, a lot of things here, but it's also decentralized that if I need to move an animal to a zoo in Chicago, um, it, it's gone for breeding. If there's places in Florida that want to work with the animals I have, they they have access to those animals. So I, I keep everything kind of on an Excel spreadsheet. And along with that, I still maintain a captive bred wildlife permit. Those permits are very hard to get now. U.S. Fish and Wildlife really stopped issuing those a few years ago, which is unfortunate. And, and there may be some political and legal things that ultimately come out of that, but that's beyond the scope of this talk. However, I still was able to maintain a captive bred wildlife permit um, for my favorite animal, which is the African dwarf crocodile. And the case we made with Fish and Wildlife was I own more of them than most zoos do and more genetically diverse uh, bloodlines. So what we want to do is we want to maintain that in the, in the best possible manner. Really, it, it comes down to kind of more managing sometimes. 
than than actually keeping. But in my case, I, I really do both. So what, do you uh, have any so advice I'm, I'm, for it? My, my favorite thing is uh, monitor lizards, okay. especially like Komodos and water monitors. So what, what was it like um, raising a, a Komodo dragon? Because that's, that's really cool, like especially with how um, intelligent they are. Like yeah. you can you can look at it and like it's just like with monitor lizards in general, and you can like see them thinking. And it's really cool. So what, what was that like? Actually, I raised two Komodo dragons, uh, not just one but two. It was a pair of siblings, and I think they came from Dallas Zoo. It's funny you mention that because every animal is somewhat different in personality. I found this little crocodile I'm holding is is actually one of my favorite little crocs. He's He's a little bit yellower than most, and he's, he's, he's real gentle. His siblings may not be as gentle. Each animal has a different personality. So the two Komodos that I raised, we, we thought one was a female, and we thought one was a male. Um, Loki and, I believe, Rex. Were the, the Rex was the male. Loki was the female. The female Komodo, uh, first of all, Komodos are born very beautiful. They're, they're bright yellow and like a cinnamon color and they've got spots all over them they're a very 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 colorful little lizard when you have them as young later they get bigger and, and kind of a dull brownish color but as babies they're they're stunningly beautiful with these spots these bright yellow iridescent green um, i'm sorry iridescent yellow uh orange markings one of them the female was very skittish from the get-go from from a small animal all the way up to about six feet she was not very tractable, and we didn't we didn't really get a grasp on handling her very well. In fact, I, I had the unfortunate thing of she she would um, hit the hit hit the keeper so hard with her tail she'd whip her tail that she actually broke off a real small piece of the tail when it when it hit the glass. Um, very small. You're you're only, you're only talking like two millimeters, but she just was a nervous lizard from the very start till the time that, that she she moved out of the zoo. The other animal, on, on the other hand, what we thought was Rex, which we think was the male, was very handleable, very tractable, very laid back. Uh, you could, I, I would put him on my shoulder, he'd, he'd walk around um, up on my shirt, he'd, he'd, he'd kind of lick the air, uh, he, he might walk on top of your head, and then he'd kind of come back down in your arm, and, and he was... Uh, you could hand feed him uh, mice, frozen thawed rodents like mice and uh, pinky rats from from the get go. He he just was complete opposite of that female Komodo. They're very intelligent. Monitors monitors are more bird like in in their behavior. I think in their thinking, uh, even their eyes uh, will will dilate, and and that may that may place in somewhat in an emotional response like. For example, parrots. When when a parrot is upset, the the, the pupils will constrict, and uh, I think the mon the monitors have much more of a bird like intelligence, say than than like an iguana type of intelligence. So, really how would you relate that to uh, yeah, crocodilian intelligence? Well, crocs are crocs are a whole different story now. Uh, crocs are archosaurs. Uh, birds and crocodiles are the last remaining archosaurs and uh, people kind of think that crocodiles and birds are more related which is probably true than uh, certainly than turtles and then further down you have snakes and lizards so crocodiles 
think of it this way. Crocodiles build nests for the most part, uh, similar to a bird. They, they have an elongated air canal, uh, like birds do. They have a muscular gizzard. They have a complete separation of ventricles in the heart. They have a four-chambered heart, like a bird does. Uh, they have they have a social behavior. Uh, they have a pecking order. I'll get I'll I'll get a hatch uh, hatchlings uh, you know twenty thirty hatchlings from maybe uh, crocs over over down in Florida, and inevitably you'll find a few that will be a lot larger. They'll hog the food. They'll be more assertive, and then you'll see the spectrum of animals. And then on the tail end. You'll get animals that are just—they look like they're just barely surviving. They're—they're they're at the bottom. They're at the bottom of that of that pecking order list. Crocodiles are very intelligent. Uh, we know that their their brain has a lot of nerve endings that indicate that that they have learning behavior. Uh, my friend Flavio Mauricier, who uh, used to be the curator of Gatorland, uh, now now he's been on his own. He, he was uh, almost a pioneer in training crocodiles where they could train crocodiles by their name, putting emphasis on the vowels and getting uh, Cuban crocodiles and Nile crocodiles to do uh, commands that you would normally see uh, dogs and cats doing, uh, large, uh, higher, higher mammals. So we, we, we have about, uh, it, it's, it's fluctuating a little bit because of uh, uh, cryptic species, but there's roughly 26 species of crocodilians, two types of alligators, uh, six or so, six or seven types of caimans, depending on what gets broken off, and a, a gharial, which is that real long, thin-nosed uh, crocodilian from India. It feeds predominantly, almost exclusive, exclusively on fish. You have a false gharial, or, or tomistema, from, uh, from Borneo, and uh, that looks very similar to the gharial, but it, it kind of aligns a little closer with the crocodiles and then and then you have the rest the rest of those animals you know 13 14 15 species of true crocodiles um, and and so the the crocs are much more capable of learning and behavior modification than than I would say I would argue with, with other than snakes and lizards so you say that, I'm sorry say that left part again that, that crocodiles are much more intelligent than 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 other reptiles. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I noticed so even, from my even more uh, so than like a dragon. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry. What was that? <laughs> That's all right. Go ahead, Nate. Uh, yeah, I noticed that from my past experience working with the crocodilians that they are really really easy to train commands, teach them their name, and that they even be able to recognize certain people and have like seems like almost certain opinions about different people like i like that person i hate that person and react differently to them yeah they they, they i think they uh they recognize their keeper i i know for example i my crocodiles are trained i i train my crocs i train them when they're gonna feed there's certain keywords um they know my habits before i know my habits so for example saturday typically is feeding crocodile day so they've got seven days of lights on lights off each day monday through saturday or sunday sunday through saturday on that saturday they are different animals anticipating food even even before i give them the cue words 
they know seven nights have passed and they're, they're, they've got a good chance to get fed. So they're, they're a little more rambunctious, so to speak. What a croc will do in the wild, a croc will observe. It'll observe uh, water areas, water holes, It'll observe kangaroos coming down in the morning, coming down the feed. It'll watch those, those prey animals. It'll, it'll develop in its mind patterns of behavior. And that's where a crocodile one day will just be right there at the right time to get that to get that uh, kangaroo. In in Africa, we see the wildebeests uh, across the Zambezi uh, once once a year, right? The wildebeest migration, the zebra migration. Those now those older Nile crocodiles, the, the the ones that are a little bit older than than juveniles, they've been through this years and years and years and crocodiles live about what people live uh, 75 years uh there's been zoo records of them hitting 100 years so they're, they're pretty long lived uh, in captivity if they're fed too much fat they're going to live to 50 years they're they're going to die of heart failure but basically you can you can surmise crocodiles live about as long as the average human being 75 years plus or minus well the the Nile crocodiles will kind of anticipate a week or two ahead of time when those wildebeest, wildebeests are coming through and those zebras. They'll start kind of gearing up along the banks of those rivers. And they, they think that they kind of know they're ready for them, even before the, wild, the wildebeest still may be, you know, 60 miles away. That's so... Um, and maybe this isn't, like, so easily, like, distinguished, but are is is they are they um, the younger crocodiles? Are they learning from the older ones, or did they have to relearn by figuring it out as well? Like, are, are, are like yeah, if that, you understand? That's that's a real good that's a real good question, um, and I, I don't have the answer to that. Uh, crocodiles, for the most part, for the most part, are solitary. Young crocodiles typically get eaten by older crocodiles so there's there's usually a high degree of cannibalism now it's not so much found in certain species um or some species are more social you've got 26 types you've got nile crocodiles american alligators the spectacled caimans on one end of the spectrum are very very social crocodilians to other to their own species you'll find congregations of hundreds or thousands of caimans uh, alligators are the social butterfly of of their world Nile crocodiles have a pecking order and they congregate to get those wildebeests so certain species are more social than others on the opposite side of the spectrum you have things like uh, Chinese alligators the, the Chinese alligator species is a very antisocial little crocodilian uh, you know, you can pair them up, but they beat each other up. Uh, you get eggs, and 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 in the wild, they're they're kind of either found in pairs or singly. African dwarf crocodiles are usually only found in pairs. If you keep two females together, they'll kill each other. Um, there, there's there's a spectrum of crocodile social um, behavior, and it, it kind of is is varied. Yes, I, I do think that in the wild, some of the more social crocodilians observe and 
see what their other crocodilians are doing and and they learn from that because there there is a pecking order so even in, in even in this african migration the, the larger bull crocs get the first um get the first crack at, at at any food and then and then it goes down to the lower the lower status animals um do you find more can- cannibalism in less social crocodiles and or more more cannibalism in less social uh, crocodiles and less cannibalism and more social crocodiles, or is it kind of like flat uh, so, across the board? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think us- usually any any large crocodile will eat a smaller crocodile, mm. and and it, 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 it's 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 a it's a broad question: is it more or less? Well, there's a lot of factors that that can contribute. It, it can be uh, lack of food resources. Uh, it can be water levels that that babies are more dispersed. Uh, it, it can be uh, genetics. Uh, we find in crocodilians there's there's a genetics difference between. So two weeks ago, I'm I'm in the Everglades, tagging baby American crocodiles with the University of Florida. Right. I put some great photos on Facebook, and we we tagged you know maybe 120, 130 hatchling crocodiles. Within separate nests, you get differences in behavior, which is genetic. Uh, you can you can grab a nest of hatchlings and tag them, and they're all fat and happy and and easygoing. And you, you, you go downstream a quarter mile and you grab another nest. Each one of those babies will bite you. Male crocs show big differences in in behavior. Uh, big dominant males usually kind of mellow out when they're really, really big, but the up-and-coming males uh, might be much more aggressive. Um, they're they're trying to find their territory and their space, and they've got to kind of fight fight for what they what they have. So you see differences in behavior not only genetically in crocodile populations, you see it you see it in uh, males, females, uh, size and age. So they're 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 fairly complex animals, somewhat genetic somewhat environmental on, on how they behave. Something something I read was that uh, certain populations of salamanders, um, they have, they're called vormin teeth, which are like kind of dormant fangs in the back of their throat, I guess. And uh-huh. in times of, um, I don't know if it's just the larva or if it's, or if it's even when they're in their terrestrial phase, phase that, or more terrestrial phase, that um, when there's scarce resources, those vormin teeth will grow out to fangs and they'll cannibalize another salamanders. But if they do that, they end up getting like ostracized from the group. I was wondering if you've ever seen, I'm guessing that doesn't occur in, in crocodilians at all. In, in crocodilians, in, in large crocodiles, um, most of the food that they eat is stored in fa- as fat. It, it's stored in the tail. Uh, the, the tail holds a lot of fat. Uh, underneath the, uh, the 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 back holds a lot of fat, and crocodilians are very 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 good at storing energy. A large adult crocodile can go for probably two years if it really needed to without eating. Wow. Uh, yeah. The babies uh, can go several months without eating. Uh, so so crocs crocs can go for a long time without food. Now that being said, hatchlings uh, can can go say 
certain amounts of months, but ultimately they're going to starve to death. So in, in lean times or, or areas where the, the female has nested and there's just not a lot of prey items, talking you know, little bugs, little crabs to eat, you will, you will see high mortality in starvation or the, the animals are so emaciated that they're easy pickings for birds and turtles uh, to, to eat. When, when crocodiles lay their eggs, clutches are either, um, either crocodiles, depending on the species, they'll build a mound of vegetation or, or they'll, they'll dig a hole in the sand. They'll either, they'll either lay sand, like Nile crocs will simply lay their eggs and deposit them in the sand like sea turtles do, whereas the saltwater crocodile will build a gigantic mound of vegetation and put the eggs in. The hatchlings generally have about a, a one in 50 chance of surviving. That's kind of the thought behind it. That, that's a very broad statement. In protected areas, like, like for example, the, the, the areas in Florida where we were looking at the American crocodiles in the Everglades, there's no predation by humans. You know, they're all on protected land. Any, anything that's gonna eat them is gonna be like a tarpon or a heron um, or an egret. And, and, and we see that actually the, the population, about, about 15 out of 100 crocodiles survive. So that, that's actually much higher. So, so crocodiles, when, they're, when the eggs are laid and when the hatchlings come, they're, they're, like, they're like sea turtles. They're, they're gonna face a high mortality rate. And the odds are, for instance, in sea turtles, one, you know, one in 70 sea turtle will make it, but it'll be just enough for that population to keep growing over time. Crocs, chameleons, a lot of snakes, a lot of reptiles are the same way. They're, it, it's a numbers game. It's, it's not emotional. It's how many can make it to survive to adulthood, and can they kind of beat the odds? So that difference in nesting behavior, is that more of a something you notice in habitat, or is that more of a species thing? Well, that, that's a great question. It, it's species-related. However... I'm going to circle back to this Everglades scenario. In the American crocodile population in Florida only, we see the only place in the world where one species, the American crocodile, Crocodilus acutus, will adopt two methods of laying the eggs. They'll, they'll build a mound out of sand and, and some vegetation, and other American crocodiles in the population will deposit their eggs in the sand. The reason for that is fascinating. In the 1950s, the American crocodile population native to Florida was decimated. Uh, you know, skin trading, uh, food for, you know, hides. The population was pretty low. It, it was decided to introduce a lot of Jamaican animals, a lot of Jamaican American crocodiles into the, the Florida population thinking an American crocodile is an American crocodile, period. A, a pigeon is a pigeon, whether it's flying in Ohio or Indiana. So they introduced Jamaican American crocodiles from Jamaica into the Everglades. Later, they introduced animals that probably came from Belize, somewhere in Central America, into the Florida population after the Jamaican animals. So you have three populations in Florida. You have the native Florida population that had been there prior to the 50s. You have the Jamaican animals that were introduced and you have the uh, Central American 
Belizean animals that were introduced. In recent times, we found that the American crocodiles show a, a bit of a genetic difference depending on where they're from. The Antilles American crocodiles are genetically distinctive from the Jamaican animals, and the Jamaican animals uh, may be distinctive from animals found in Colombia. So, so now there's there's like two or three genetically somewhat distinctive populations of the same species of the American crocodile. So in Florida, what we have, we've observed now is we observe animals that will sometimes have a mound or sometimes deposit the eggs in the sand. And that's the only place in the world where a crocodile will adopt either method. And sometimes it's the same female adopting the method, whether she, her parents came from different origins, uh, that's still got to be worked out. But it, it is generally species dependent on whether they're mound nesters or, or whether they're uh, hole nesters. Uh, American alligators, um, Chinese alligators, uh, the caimans uh, for, for almost, I think, exclusively uh, will we'll put the eggs in in a mound. One, one species of caiman called Paleosuchus trigonatus, they call them the wedgehead caimans or Schneider's dwarf caimans. The common names, you could have like five common names for the same animal. But Paleosuchus trigonatus will, uh, will actually deposit the eggs in a mound on top of termite mounds in the rainforest because the, the rainforest can't warm up uh, with the sunlight due to uh, all the trees covering covering the, um, the the light so they they put a nest on top of a termite mound and the heat from the termites actually warms the eggs up enough to incubate those eggs and so with that um, I had heard I don't know if this is true or not but I heard like a whisper of it can do they um, crocodiles or any other reptile that whether the sex is temperature dependent? Yeah. Do they, yeah. If, there's, if there's more like females in the population, do they try and like correct that? And, and like, yeah, the, the 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 by by odds, by odds, the fem the females have greater odds of hatching than the males. And the reason the reason for that is lower temperatures, say 80, 82 to say eighty six degrees. Are going to be the, the temperature of sex determinant females. Then, then you're going to have a, a, a narrow band where where the temperature sex can go either way. So, say for example, at 87.5 to 88.3, you could you could really kind of have a neutral zone. It, it can go either way. Now, then you're you're going to have a couple of degrees where you're going to produce males at say the upper 80s or lower 90s. However, when you go above that just a little bit, you produce what's called high temperature females. So you go back to producing a female. So by odds, you have female, neutral, male, female. And, and so you don't see any behaviors to like try and produce more of like one sex or anything? No, no. Is, um... Do you see any behavioral differences, like between like a fe like a low temperature female and a high temperature female? Yeah, I, I think in captivity they have. It, it's hard in the wild because you, you really don't you really don't know. You, you can't really get all that data. It's a hard it's a hard yeah. thing to qualify in the wild. You're you're 
barely finding nests and, and getting bitten by mosquitoes when you're out in the field. But in captivity, um, I think I've heard reports that high temperature females are kind of a little more neurotic. Uh, they may not they may not do as well as as the regular uh, lower temperature animals do. But that that has other factors of stress and diet and. Um, but yeah, as far as high temperature females, they generally think it could be wrong, but they generally think that that they just quite aren't aren't as hardy as the as the temperatures that that were uh, hatched at lower temperatures with the, the female population. Now, when I incubate crock eggs, I leave them usually. I'll leave them in the uh, the ground. The, the by the way, the temperature sex determination in crocodiles happens around like between about day thirteen to day fifteen, depending on the species. So. So if you have an egg freshly laid around, you know, two weeks, that the end of that two weeks is when you're, you're going to get your male or female uh. determination. Anything after that, it's already it's already been determined. So, but what I, I typically do, like even with this little fella here, this little more let's crocodile, I'll, I'll let the eggs stay in there for a month or so. And uh, when we pull the eggs out, there's a couple reasons I do that, but one is one it's a flip of the coin whether we have males or females and two uh the crocodiles will will usually uh defecate on the eggs to some degree and and the acid in the soil and the acid uh the, the uric acid that the crocodiles defecated on the eggs actually helps break down the shell of the egg wow. like the calcified shell so when that little little embryo goes 90 days in the shell that acid in the soil has kind of kind of already made that shell a little bit softer to to uh, have the babies hatch out at. So, do you, do you talk anything about your uh, recent research with the University of Florida down the Everglades? Yeah. So, so we talk about. Um, so, I started sponsoring them. Uh, I'm I've started it when I got back. I'm sponsoring uh, their research uh, financially. I'm giving money. Uh, through the ZAA, through the Zoo, uh, Zoological Association of America, to help the researchers get, um, you know, uh, food and and hopefully, uh, I says, you know, if they get a good year, they can buy a bottle of champagne on my dime. Uh, they never will, but you know, to get make sure their their motor for their boats working. I was down there, and um, you know, there's certain things that they need, hardware wise and bug spray wise. So, uh, so I'm financially uh, committing to a year support to help to help the project. Uh, probably I'll, I'll support them for several years, but we're, we're going to support them for one year, and that's through through the ZAA. I'm giving money through the ZAA, which goes goes to the university. That is really um, that's really a fun project because a it's a it's within the United States, and given COVID. You, you don't you don't have the limitations of trying to fly out of the country you, you hop on a, a flight straight down to Miami and within within three hours you're in Florida second it's it's a species that even though they're not endangered they're still kind of threatened and vulnerable and that gives some some credibility for the ZAA to uh, get in good with fish and wildlife as well as uh, the Florida government and then finally, it's a it's a heck of a lot of fun. The, the researchers are generally uh, master students in biology or or PhD level in biology. The uh, exhilaration of here's here's how it kind of goes. We we get on the boat, 
at about three o'clock in the afternoon. We get out to the islands uh, about an hour later, and we stay out till about four in the morning, working straight through, finding as many crocodiles with spotlights as we can, recording all the data, recording where the nests are, recording the weights, the measurements of the hatchlings, clipping the scales uh, on the tail so we can identify later on what number that is. Um, basically, you, you have three three uh, different areas on the tail, and depending on how you clip each scale, you can you can go up to like over 10,000 number uh, based off the pattern of how you clip clip the little scoops. It doesn't hurt the animal, but that project has been going on for over 40 years, and and they've been able to track animals that are now 20, 30, 40 years old. And they've seen the population grow, so it's it's really a it, it, crocodiles are somewhat of an indicator species. Um, you can look at organochlorines in the blood to determine pesticide and pollution levels in South Florida because they eat, live, breathe. Their whole life cycle is in the water, so they're they're somewhat of an indication species. I chose crocodiles one because not a lot of people think they're charismatic overall. You know, the bald eagle is always going to get support. The Florida panther is going to get attention. Uh, if you're in China, you know, everybody loves the panda bear. And, you know, the American crocodile, there's, uh, you know, I love them, but there's, there's, not, there's not people in line waiting to, uh, to, to, go, uh, to go study these. Um, although when I got back, I, I got hit up with half a dozen friends on Facebook wanting to go next year. Um, can some I go? Of them asking, hey, you know, can we... Yeah, and they said, "Hey," and I says, "Well, I says we can, we can, we can talk about it, but, um, but uh, you know, out of that six people, I'd be, I'd be lucky if one actually comes through um, next year." The um, that that's that's one thing that I like about reptiles. I tell people that I like about, it, and it's it's um, you can definitely see it with crocodile crocodilians and stuff. Is that reptiles, like in general, they look like they're they're like mean or they're angry or whatever. But they're they're so especially with crocodiles like they're they're so chill like I, I live down in South Florida and I go to the Everglades all the time uh-huh. and I mean I see um I like to I'll I'll just sleep in my car and I'll get up in the morning and bike down like the dirt roads and stuff and there's um, alligators all along the side so and it's really I mean you can get right up next to them and they're just yeah. kind of so for your listeners to see actual American crocodiles in the United States. They want to go to Flamingo Bay Marina in the Everglades. 90% of the diet of American crocodiles is fish. Also, American crocodiles have killed people further in their range in the Caribbean and Central and South America. However, American crocodiles in the last 200 years have never killed a person on the continental United States from that Florida population. Prior to the 200 years, there was one person that died, and and the reason they died was they found an adult male American crocodile on a beach, they thought it was dead, they kicked it, and the American crocodile turned around and and whacked them. I don't have much sympathy, I have crocodile tears for that person. (laughs) Uh, But the Flamingo Bay in the Everglades, south of Homestead, it's about a 45 50 minute drive south of homestead you go in the everglades national park there's a marina and you can rent canoes you can rent kayaks you can actually rent a houseboat for 300 dollars a night or 
you can actually rent tents there for $50 a night and they have electricity in the tents. You get a cot for another 20 bucks and you get a fan and, and the tents are beautiful. They're, they're all uh, on, a, on a deck and, and there's a, a hot and cold shower along with restrooms and, and running water uh, for $50 a night. It's, it's not too bad. Um, but you will see American crocodiles in the marina and there's a there's a bait station on one side of the marina and there's generally a, an adult pair of crocodiles uh, the male is called uh, gummy he's, he's missing part of his lower jaw uh, he's, he's about a 10 to 11 foot male croc and then the female is a little bit all female crocodiles are smaller than males uh, so if a, a male is like a Nile croc is 14 feet the females are usually going to get like eight to nine feet so the male the female American crocodile that hangs out at the marina with gummy is she's closer to seven feet i was taking a lot of drone drone photos at eye level um with the camera only about three feet high and a lot of camera pictures i was only five to six feet away from either of those crocs they're not going to hurt you as long as you give them a little bit of space and six feet of space is plenty for those particular animals when you rent a canoe you can go canoeing through the canals and american crocodiles will be uh swimming or on the bank of the canoe or on the banks of the river they 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 won't hurt you you have more of a chance of getting bit by a dog in your neighborhood than any any encounter with those american crocodiles down there now alligators you, you can kind of see alligators in many places in the u.s but the actual crocodile is is very localized and many of the populations of the crocodiles in florida are on federally protected land or they're so far out in the Keys, you, you need a boat to get there and it, it might take you uh, a half an hour to an hour. And then even then, you, you've got to kind of know where they're at. But but to, but for the general public to actually come across an American crocodile in person, uh, you have about a 90% chance anytime you're down in that Flamingo Bay Marina to, to see one of several American local crocodile residents. So I'm more of a like lizard and snake guy, so I actually don't know this. Um, so and so for the listeners too, are the American or crocodiles? Are they native to America or were they introduced? They are native to Florida. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So the American crocodile is native. The range, the Florida, the very southern tip of Florida and the Keys, is the northernmost part of their range. Then. They come all the way through the Caribbean because they're they're truly a saltwater species. They can survive saltwater and an open ocean, although they prefer brackish water. Crocodile the crocodiles have uh, glands in their tongue that allows them to do what's called osmoregulation, meaning they can excrete concentrated salt out of their bodies, which gives them the ability to live in salty environments because they can they can remove the excess salt. Alligators uh, don't really necessarily have that, or to a limited degree. That's why you see alligators in freshwater. An alligator can live in saltwater to a, a, a degree, but ultimately it will die in long-term exposure to saltwater. Crocodiles, the American crocodiles and other species of crocodiles are usually much more adept to living in pure saline environments. So, so the, the homestead area, the Keys and the surrounding area to around the uh, Key Biscayne to Key West is the northernmost population of American crocodiles. 
and then they're found all throughout the Caribbean, Cuba, Jamaica, Hispaniola, uh, all the islands in the Caribbean. They're, they're found throughout Mexico on the Atlantic portion. So they come, they come all the way down and then they're found, uh, down to Colombia, and, uh, and possibly, uh, maybe Venezuela. I'm not, I'm not really sure because the Orinoco crocodiles, that that's more of the, or you start to get the Orinoco crocodiles range, but basically the population of American crocodiles kind of looks like an amoeba starting around Florida, going all the way through Central America on the Atlantic coast and kind of, kind of swallowing up that whole Caribbean group of islands. The, um, so, so that gland in their tongue, that, will that, like, that absorbs the salt out of the water and then they can expel it out of the gland? Well, the crocodiles will absorb salt when they're eating fish or, right. or prey in, in, the, in the salt water. Or, or they'll simply swallow salt water as they're, as they're uh, eating their food. Now, they have a valve that, that shuts off the, uh, the, the flow of water. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're, they're not drowning. And one minor, one minor difference between alligators and crocodiles is crocodiles don't have tongues. Alligators actually have tongues. But uh, crocodiles have a guller, a guller uh, pouch. And so when they're eating, uh, when they're swimming, occasionally salt water gets in their body. They, they just simply have the means of, of getting rid of that salt. What happens is the glands, the glands have concentrated salt. You know, salt water is only uh, what one, you know, one percent salt. Yeah. What the glands do is they can it can create you know, concentrations of higher salt, and then and then it, it kind of it's almost like sweat. It comes out. Yeah. It com it comes out like in beaded form. You see, like iguanas will sneeze salt. Yeah. Uh, iguanas, you'll you'll see the cage of the salt. You 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 especially see it in marine iguanas in the Galapagos Islands where they're sneezing yeah. salt on those volcanic rocks all day long. It's basically the same concept. It, it's it's a way for the reptile to get rid of the salt. Uh, sea turtles will excrete it through their tears. Uh, we we pee it out. Yeah. You know, in some cases, uh, but uh, that that's that's the reason why the American crocodile can inhabit more oceanic and brackish areas than than the alligators, the caimans, because you know they come in contact with caimans as well. Um, that there's other species. There's in the New World, there's there's actually four types of crocodiles. The American crocodile, found in that whole region. The Morlets crocodile, which I have here, known as the Mexican crocodile, that'll that'll be found in the Yucatan Peninsula, about 60 miles from the Texas border. So they, the Morlets crocodile actually kind of has the niche of the American alligator, but in Mexico, they'll, they'll, they're more of a marsh, uh, pond, lake animal, where the Americans are a little more coastal. Uh, but now we're actually, because of human pressure, we're actually seeing American crocodiles move in to the Morlets region, and they freely interbreed. Uh, crocs, crocs will interbreed with other species of crocs. And then you have the Cuban crocodile in the Zapata Swamp region and the Isle of Pines in Cuba. That is a very, very restrictive range. Those are considered not only the smartest of all the crocodilians, but they're certainly the, 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 the most um, powerful crocodile for its size. And then you have the Orinoco crocodile, which looks very similar to the American crocodile, um, only that 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 they're they're a little bit um, they're a little bit lighter usually in color, and they're very restricted 
to the Orinoco Delta down in South America. So you have, you have four different types of crocodiles, one species of alligator, the American alligator, and then you have um, you have six species of caimans in the New World. The black caiman, which gets gigantic, it gets 18 feet. Uh, they, black caimans will kill people and eat them. They look a lot like American alligators. They're found in Guyana, Brazil. You have the spectacled caiman, the yukari caiman, the smooth-fronted caiman, or uh, Schneider's dwarf caiman, the Paleosuchus trigonatus, the dwarf caiman, the Paleosuchus palpabrosus, and then you have the broad-snouted caiman, which is caiman laterostris. That that is your that is your uh, that is your whole group in the U.S. You have a, a brown caiman, which is an offshoot of the spectacled caiman called caiman fuscus, and there's one caiman that may be its own species coming up called caiman apoparensis. It has a, a more of a narrow jaw than the other caimans do. It kind of looks like a crocodile almost. It, it kind of has yet to be described officially. They know it's there. They know it's different. The scientists do. They just haven't really identified and separated it out formally. But that, that, that you, see, you may see that coming up in future years. Is that because, um, like, is that something they just, they recently discovered was there, or did they, did they recently discover it was different? And, and what's, is it like genetically or morphologically, or? It, it's it's uh, genetically and morphologically different. So the DNA is different. It, you can go back to the books on the 1950s even, and they'll say the apoporensis came and is different. Um, like, recently they split the African dwarf crocodiles up. I have... I have both species here. I, I knew early on that they were different species, and science, because of funding, because yeah, of interest, yeah. because of permits, because you know you got to get into these countries that sometimes are very, very difficult to work in. I mean, you, you know, when was the last time someone volunteered to work in um, the Congo and say, "Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna spend, you know, forty thousand dollars identifying a crocodile in the Congo that may be unique." So there's there's challenges for science to kind of catch up. Um, even even within the last decade or so, the American crocodile was was broken up into at least genetically different populations. Whether they further take that into different species, I don't know yet. But the Antilles population of American crocodiles is actually closer genetically to the Cuban crocodile than it is to the other American crocodiles, the ones from Florida. Mexico and the other parts of the Caribbean. So, so there's all these, all these uh, DNA uh, changes and identification, and then they say, "Hey, we we got to rethink everything we, we've we've been doing." And that's that's really the fun of it too. That's yeah. that's what science is all about is discovery. So with the, uh, the uh, in, with that thing, in, this... with that Antilles group, would that go ahead, Nate. With Antilles group, would that genetic similarity to Cubans be due to the uh, frequent uh, hybridization between the two species? I think it was before the, any hybridization took place. Oh, okay. Because I know that the, uh, the hybridization is actually the the hybridization on the Cuban crocodile. The Cuban crocodile is called the pearl crocodile. It, it's a very beautiful black and yellow croc. I've got them here. I love the Cuban crocs. I actually name all my Cuban crocs. It, it's a terrestrial, more of a terrestrial crocodilian. During the Ple uh, Pleistocene, 10, 15,000 years ago, Cuba was a very different place. And there were these ground sloths 
that weighed 150, 175 pounds. They were the size of our black bear. The Cuban crocodile would hunt in packs and kill these 150, 200 pound ground sloths that had gigantic claws. After the end of the ice age, recently, quote speaking, a lot of that, that megafauna went extinct. The woolly mammoths, the woolly mammoths, the saber-toothed cats, the, the giant buffaloes, along with these ground sloths went extinct. The Cuban crocodile hasn't had time to evolve downwards. It still has a, a, an incredible jumping ability, an incredible social behavior. It can outrun a human in short distance. It has a high intelligence. They're they're designed like a Corvette would be designed, but now, but now they're eating nutria, and you know small small uh, rodent-like creatures and fish, because the prey all of a sudden it's like a carpet got pulled out from under the Cuban crocodile's evolution. Cuban crocodile still has all this all this uh, powerful weaponry, but it doesn't need it anymore. Well, in the 1950s, Castro. Uh, built canals that led from the coastal region into the Zapata Swamp. When Castro did that, that allowed the Native American population to start coming in those canals and interbreeding with the, with the small, isolated Cuban crocodile population. So, that's, so the hybridization really started uh, about 60 years ago, and it was because of Castro's building of the canals that allowed it. The, the Antilles American crocodiles, you're talking, you know, many tens of thousands of years where those evolved differently. Uh, so you, you have a, a slower evolving population that resembles possibly what, you know, maybe way back in the day, the Cuban crocs and those, those um, American crocs were kind of like one ancestor and they kind of split. So that, that could explain why they're so genetically close. However, uh, it's a relatively recent discovery on the, on the, the DNA of those. So it, it does have to be explored further. Yeah, I've heard some people describe uh, the uh, Cuban so crocodiles' uh, physiological traits and hunting abilities as the equivalent of uh, hunting a white-tailed deer with a nuclear warhead. Well, they're, <laughs> they're, they're quite not that bad. I, I have them here. Um, I, I can't bring them up to show you because I, I, I can't bring a crocodile up upstairs. But, um, but they, 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 as they become adults, um, if you treat them like you would treat a, a mammal, like a big cat, you'll never have a problem with Cubans. You, you, you can use shifts. You can use tr target training. Uh, if, you, if you don't treat them like an alligator and you treat them like a, like a cat that can hurt you, like a mountain lion, it, 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 it puts them in the perspective. Now, they're, they're also, I find, not only are they very intelligent, but they train the best. And, and they're, they're extremely, extremely receptive to training. They, they kind of have an overactive feeding response, which people translate into aggression. For instance, we were taking pictures of a group of Cuban crocodiles down in Florida that kind of was left alone. The guy, the guy that had them sort of just let them be Cubans. He'd feed them. He wouldn't interact with them. They were jumping at the flashes of the camera. That's how that's how alert they are. They're, they 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 know something's different, but they're but they're reacting with their mouths open and jumping at the flashes of these these cameras. 
Um, when you keep them, though, and you raise them up, they train very well. They're very smart. They learn very well. And, and, and when you train an animal, you give it consistent um, instructions between what's food and what's not food. And, and they're marvelous. You can, you can pet them. You can have people come over and pet them. I, not necessarily with mine because of the insurance. Down in Gatorland, uh, they had Jojo, a small Cuban crocodile that they start, Flavio started training at a very early age. Jojo is now eight, eight feet, nine feet. Um, you could you could walk between them and you could pet them, because he 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 knows she knows she knows command words. So they're they're like a tiger or or a lion. You know they're dangerous, yes, but they're very very trainable. And as long as you stay within their their training ability, uh, Cuban crocodiles are very very predictable. I'll say they're they're more predictable than um, than than some of the other species. And I, and I have things like Chinese alligator hair. I've got very rare, unusual um, species here that you don't commonly see. But but the Cubans are the Cubans are a lot of fun. Plus, they're beautiful. They're they're black and yellow, and they look like pearls all over their body. They're not a very big crocodile. Uh, females they're they're like a medium sized. Uh, females are closer to the six six or seven foot mark. Male a, a good male would be a eight foot would be a uh, nine foot would be tops, so they're not large like other species like Niles, where you can get a, a 14, 15, 16 foot Nile croc or a, a saltwater crocodile. You can get a 16, 17 foot salty, but pound for pound, the Cubans are are um, definitely definitely different. Wow, I really want to visit um, your place. So now. going on that thread, say that again, Nate. I said I really want to visit his place now. It sounds like an awesome basement. <laughs> um, going along that thread of like responsible reptile keeping and stuff like that. Um, so this is kind of more of a contentious thing. So you can pass on this. You don't have to answer the question if you don't want to. But um, what are your thoughts with like the FWC and banning like Burmese python, like yeah. owning Burmese pythons and stuff like that in Florida? Yeah. They're completely nuts. They should leave them alone. Uh, okay, so you got. Okay, what's your what's your argument? Are you gonna are you gonna ban them for being an invasive species? Okay, why aren't you looking at the pigs? Why aren't you looking at the cats? Those are invasive species and have a thousand times more damage to the environment than the Burmese pythons. Yeah, the Burmese pythons are there. They shouldn't be there. They are they are something to address. But your invasive species, your cats, are going to be the main. The cats are the worst invasive species you could ever have. Second are your pigs. Your pigs are eating wild bird eggs. They're eating rattlesnakes. They're eating all the natives. They're eating anything they can. Those, those two are far more uh, problematic than the pythons or the iguanas. The iguanas are are relatively okay so now you're going to ban people keeping iguanas well i hate to tell you fish and wildlife iguanas have been in florida for over 50 years iguanas have been in florida since the 1950s maybe even the 1940s there's tens of thousands of iguanas in florida today so you're going to take the people that have the albino and the blue iguanas or the pet lizard and you're going to restrict it. 
okay, you've restricted 0.0000001% of the iguanas. You, you haven't touched the wild population. So a lot of these, a lot of these restrictions are, they're politically driven. There's probably yeah. money, there's probably funding, there's special interest groups in them. Back old school, old school when, when these World War II vets were running the country, it was, it was a lot, there was a lot more freedom and, and, and more common sense. <laughs> the common sense in the government, especially with regards to reptiles, it's politically motivated. It's, uh, you know, the animal rights groups, the HSUS, the PETAs, they have budgets of $130 million a year. Okay. Um, they're they're a, a group of lawyers and, and, for the most part, activists that are vegetarians. They're, they've got agendas. It, it doesn't match with the science. But, you know, people, people make this. Remember the elephant? Always remember in life, the elephant and the rider. The rider is a person who has the intellect, the data, and maybe the science behind them. But the, the rider is 150 to 200 pounds. The elephant is emotionally a two-year-old. Doesn't think beyond that. It's a smart animal, but it's almost a pure emotional animal if you know elephants. Yeah, they're, I mean, yeah, they're intelligent, but they really, really, really are emotional. In a fight, 100% of the time, if it's just one and one, the elephant's going to win. The emotion will usually almost always trump logic. Mm. So what these places do is they, they hype up the emotion. Yeah. The, well, and that's what I was trying to explain that to a coworker with the Burmese pythons and stuff, because I was I was just like, well, Burmese pythons are, like, a really easy and great pet to have. Like, they're, they're not, like, anything crazy difficult and stuff. I was like, I just don't, like, see it being... Like, I, I understand, like, with a lot of people, like, we were talking about how some... A lot of people in, like, the reptile industry, or, or just in general with pets, like, with dogs and stuff, will get stuff without really understanding it. Yeah. So I understand that aspect, but, like... They're, they're not a difficult and they're they're a pretty rewarding snake yeah. to have I mean you know, you know if you look at if you look at the, the history of the reptiles if you look at reptiles prior to you got to go back prior to say the 90s the 90s is kind of when things started taking off and and even when I was a young kid I remember these older guys saying if if our hobby ever starts well when the when this hobby started making a lot of money like the albino Burmese pythons the and a little bit later than that, when the albino ball python, when ball pythons were starting to be a little bit more popular and, and people were starting to make tens of thousands of dollars, they said, you know, once the government gets a hold of this, it's it's going to be a whole different ball game. So remember, I, I was in it when, you know, 300 people in the whole country kept kept reptiles and nobody cared. Uh, you, you cared if, if you had a venomous snake in the city. You might have a regulation. In many cases, you didn't even have regulations in the cities. If you had a cobra, there just there just wasn't that mindset. And now everything is regulated. So it, it the pendulum has gone from um, kind of common sense to really uh, you, you'd almost say a witch hunt. Yeah, that's what um, the I was really the thing that really 
like upset me the most was them banning the tegus. They kind of gone back and forth on that one, but like them banning the tegus because that's one of my favorite lizards, and they're so much fun to to interact with because they're they're so interactable. You know, not not all reptiles you can really like right interact yeah, they, with. And tegus tegus do. Are, yeah. tegus are kind of the South American equivalent of a monitor lizard. Yeah. So so they have what's what's called convergent evolution. And that's when two different organisms like an emerald tree boa and a green tree python that are found across the world or a tegu and a monitor have similar environmental pressures. So they evolve kind of along similar paths. And, and so they'll adopt behaviors that are similar. You know, the pythons will coil, the emeralds will coil. Uh, the intelligence will, will develop. Their diet will develop. Even the coloration and scalation of their body will be similar, you know, green tree pythons have real tiny little scales, emeralds do, they're, I mean, they're almost like equivalent, tegus and monitors, so you see that if you like monitors, you're, you're probably going to like tegus, because in, in many ways, they, they those two groups of lizards have had similar pressure put on them, and and those pressures have been very, very close together, so you, you get an animal that, that's relatively similar. How... Um... I don't know how uh, much you know about this, but how, like, dangerous are they for, like, the environment down in South Florida? Because I've heard them compared to, like, raccoons. Yeah, but well... worse for the environment. Well, the, the, the problem with South Florida is overpopulation with humans. That's yeah. the first... That's, that's, that's the number one problem. It's, it's the, the sugar cane industry that uh, diverts or, or has the, the water from Lake Okeechobee um, diverted and changed and Florida management changes the water flow because really the Everglades is a river of grass but but you have big sugar that that changes that politically hmm. so that's that's the number one problem with South Florida is is water and where, where does the water go where does the pollution go sugarcane creates a lot of pollution really it, it absolutely does. Look up, look up. Um, if you if you get a chance, uh, you can YouTube uh, South Florida sugar industry and and problems. So it's a big it's a big issue because because Lake Okeechobee and the water and the rain come down, and, and that that river of grass really really is what is what keeps the Everglades going. Now, when you start moving that water around and feeding it to crops and uh, of course, Miami and Fort Lauderdale's population, we, we know how fast Florida's growing. You're, now you're creating phosphates in the water, you're creating pollution in the water, putting fertilizers in the water, you're putting too much nutri- nutrition in the water. And that, that's, disrupting, that's disrupting the ecosystem. So population industry is, is probably 97% of, of the main issues. Then you have uh, cats, invasive cats. You have uh, the, the, the hogs, the invasive pigs that, that eat up uh, a large portion of the native wildlife. Now, I'm not denying that Burmese pythons should not belong. They absolutely should not belong in the Florida Everglades, nor should the tegus, nor should the now monitors. In fact, nor should even the veiled chameleons that have about as much environmental impact as a puff of smoke while you're on the middle of Lake Erie. They, they don't really impact the wild, but but they don't belong there. Um, however, uh, you know, 
there's there's so many animals in the last 200 years that don't belong in the United States that uh, you really uh, the honeybee is an invasive species. Yeah. Uh, the Carolina parakeet, which went extinct, it, it was our native. Uh, it was the the country's only native parakeet. There was a beautiful little Carolina parakeet. They looked like uh, gold lorikeets. Uh, they went extinct, and and they didn't really necessarily go extinct from over hunting. Hunting pressure put pressure on them. What they actually went extinct was the introduction of the European honeybee during the settlers' time. The honeybees uh, utilized all the areas where the car- the parakeets would nest, and so ah. in these in these trees where the the parakeets would would be able to lay their eggs and nest are now are are now full of honeybees, and so that put pressure on the population of those parakeets, which ultimately led to their extinction. Now, wow. farmers killed, killed droves of them too, which didn't help. But usually, usually when a, a population crashes, in 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 studying the ecology, it's generally not one thing. It's it's generally a few factors. But usually, you can look at one or two of those factors as being the main cause. That's really interesting. So, um, wow. I didn't, I didn't know. I actually just saw a hog this weekend down in Florida. I was herping and stuff, and I saw a hog and a fox, like, uh, within, like, 20 meters of each other, like, two seconds apart. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, the, uh, the, the, um, for example, the eastern diamondback rattlesnake, it's not a snake your average person really likes, right? I mean, <laughs> it's a rattlesnake. And, yeah. and you know, Joe, Joe from Buffalo, New York, that moves down to Florida – does not want a rattlesnake near his property with his wife and, and kids or his wife and dog. So when people move in, they kill rattlesnakes, they kill venomous snakes, snakes move out. Understandable. When native hogs move into an area, they don't necessarily have to be in urban environments. They go everywhere. And they have a great nose. You know, a hog's nose is like a bloodhound, if not better than a bloodhound nose. I mean, they use they use hogs to sniff truffles, uh, the the truffle uh, mushrooms, because a hog is is better at sniffing out valuable truffles to eat. So hogs hogs also get huge. You know, seven, eight, nine hundred pounds. I mean, big animals, big, big, big animals, and they breed like nothing you've ever seen. Look at look at how fast populations of hogs. I mean, they can have litter after litter after litter after litter after litter after litter. So so they have a population explosion, and they eat anything, and that is mainly native wildlife. That's what um, I did research. Um, I interned when I was in college with uh, the Kentucky Reptile Zoo. Oh yeah, and. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, I, inter- or I did research with Eastern Kentucky University while I was there, and that was one of their projects. There were several facets of studying copperheads. There's several facets to it, but one of the, the main goal of it was actually to help mitigate negative reaction or negative um, interactions with people and um, and copperheads and stuff. So that was a lot of fun. But we yeah. we'd go to campground and. Um, People would ask us all the time, like, "What are you? What are you doing?" Because <laughs> yeah. we're out there in the middle of the night with flashlights and stuff, and we're telling them we're looking for copperheads, and they start freaking out, they're like, "There's copperheads here!" And 
Yeah, and, and, and you know what? You leave them alone, they, they leave you alone. Exactly. You know, copperheads eat cicadas. They, they eat the big locusts. Uh, you know, they, I mean, they eat the field mice. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's really... It's really a matter of perception, and, and we, we, we know that. Your listeners know, you know, reptiles, um, they're not cute and furry. Um, any, anybody and their brother can look at, you know, how many how many injuries are from dogs here. Okay, well, you can understand that because most people keep dogs on a relative basis. You look at how many injuries are from horseback riding versus how many injuries are from any reptile, and, you know, horse horses kill uh much much more people or injure much more people but but it's a, it's it's a matter of perception you know a panda a, a fuzzy cute little cuddly panda bear causes more injuries in the zoos because people are disarmed they think they're cute and cuddly panda bear grabs them and rips off you know rips off a limb or or severely injures a person it's just a matter of perception with with reptiles yeah. and crocs you know crocs there's there's only um a few species that you really are truly man-eaters. The Nile crocodile in Africa absolutely deserves its reputation for being a dangerous man-eating crocodile. They probably kill, you know, dozens of people in Africa. It's hard. They're tr- uh, some of the crocodile specialist group members are trying to track crocodile attacks. It's hard because a lot of these places are so remote and, and non-reported. But the Nile crocodile is truly a dangerous man-eating crocodile. The saltwater crocodile is the top of the chart. Saltwater crocodiles prey upon people, no questions asked. We, we, we go to the Solomon Islands, we go to Australia, they are dangerous, they are to be respected, and you do not go in the water if there's been a croc sighting, period. Those two croc- crocodiles account for 90% of all crocodile attacks worldwide. Wow. Then you have the black caiman. Black caiman will kill children down in Brazil, Guyana, occasionally. Not necessarily often, but occasionally. So you could say the black caiman is, is dangerous. The American crocodile is dangerous down in Central America. None have killed anybody in Florida, in the Caribbean, in Central and South America. They, they have killed people, mostly children, but they're still not an animal that, that you, you can um, shy away from. The, the, fu- the, the last one that's uh, potentially dangerous is the American alligator. Now, when you think of the numbers, I haven't looked at the latest numbers of people in Florida. It's probably 11 million people in, in just the state of Florida. I know it's, I know, I know it's quite a bit and every year it changes, but there's, millions of people in Florida. There's roughly 7 million alligators in Florida, probably. It's, it may be 6 million, it may be 8 million, but let's say for tonight, there's roughly 7 million alligators in Florida. So 11 or 12 million people, or however many millions of people are in Florida. I should really have looked that up before the podcast. <laughs> Orlando, Miami, Tampa, all major cities, all lots of folks. All places have lakes rivers streams there's a lot of water in florida it looks like a sponge when you fly over it out of all of those people and out of all of those alligators just in florida alone we're not talking alabama texas georgia south carolina we're not talking about any other state that alligators occur there's about one person every two years 
that gets killed by an alligator. Of those one person with millions of alligators and millions of people, one person dies, it's generally a child or it's somebody that was drinking too much and going into a canal at night during the breeding season with the male alligators and the male mistakens that as a territorial threat, not a source of food. So you can say that the American alligator, yes, it, it, it does kill people and attack people very occasionally, but I would, I would say that you're better off winning the super, 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 super lottery than getting, than getting any, any alligator encounter. But if, if you are going to get an alligator encounter, it's a young child, possibly an adult that's drinking and swimming at night. At night is where the attacks generally occur because that's that's when they're a little more out hunting. I was um, I watched this video um, recently and it kind of posed an interesting question. It was saying because so part of the uh, um, some of the alert to the reptile industry is that they are like seen as like dangerous or like exotic you know animals and so people will get it and then you'll get like youtube videos and stuff of people getting bit or provoking their you know like just doing dumb stuff it's emotion now how many garages in how many country and how many places in the country have a chainsaw in their garage yeah and how much more dangerous are any any power tool than a reptile Uh, i mean you could you could have a you could have power tools in your basement or garage, and and they're going to be they're going to be much more dangerous. But they're also kind of boring. They're not yeah. you know you're not showing an alligator walking down Fifth Avenue, and you're chasing little old ladies like a Far Side cartoon. So really, when you look at it, 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 it boils more down to an emotional response versus versus kind of more of a thoughtful response. I mean, of course, you, you don't have people running down chasing people with chainsaws um you know but if they did you know they would just lock them up and your chainsaw is 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 there when you get out of prison right yeah but you have somebody you know somebody takes their their alligator out and somebody complains about it all of a sudden the city is going to ban those animals um based off of one one incident that probably was overblown in, in the beginning. Now, I used to rescue alligators in Cleveland. Uh, I was the go-to guy. The Cleveland Zoo would call me and say, hey, Paul, we got another alligator. Uh, it's it's in a, a, a little puddle, you know, or or some drug dealer had it and, and his pit bull. And can you come and get the alligator and the pit bull? And, and the, the person's been taken away because of their narcotics. So I would take those alligators and I would eventually take them down to a alligator zoo down in in south carolina or or we would take them to another part of the country where they they live under the sun happily that that occurred about uh once once a year maybe twice a year at at most and when when i actually got those alligators they were all of three feet you know they were six feet on the phone to the police dispatcher (laughs) when i when i got them they're they're three feet long you know i keep the little animal and and feed it um you know, feed it a couple of mice or, or a small rat and, and it's happy to be alive. It hisses at you. You, you, you pick up the animal with a, a set of welder's gloves 
and you, you put it in a duffel bag and you drive it down to South Carolina and everybody's happy. And that alligator, you know, you look at it five years later and it, it's grown five to five, six feet. So, so a lot of these are, you know, overblown. Um, and, it, and it's, like I said, it's emotional. It's an emotional, uh, animals, children, always, always going to be emotional. Yeah, well, and this, so this, this video I was watching, the, it, it was talking about how, like, you know, we live in the industry, or the, the world, the generation of, like, people who want to be YouTube or social media yeah. stars and stuff, and so they have to get as many views as possible, and so they'll, they'll show that of the snakes or whatever being aggressive and biting them or whatever, and it gets in the views, and this, this one that I was watching were some responsible reptile keepers and stuff, and they were saying how they have to balance that because, like, no one's watching not not as many people are getting pulled to the people who are doing responsibly yeah. because they're doing it correctly and right. and so they had to kind of like balance like when can we show stuff to get people to watch it but also like yeah. not do it to the point to where people are getting the wrong impression of, of the reptiles right and uh, a lot of that you know we, we live in a we we live in a society where um, it, it's kind of funny you mention that. I was, I was looking at the difference. I, I look at um, trends outside of reptiles and animals. And, you know, we know, we know, we talk about things like cryptocurrency and digital finance, and it's going to revolutionize blockchain is going to revolutionize finance, like what the internet revolutionized information. So one of the points that uh, a professor that I watch stated that when technology or when things go digital, they grow exponentially. And what he said was, in the, la in, in the last month of any month recently, more photos have been taken by digital cameras and iPhones and, and smartphones. In one month, more pictures are taken than in the last 100 years of wow. regular photography when people had to get film developed. Wow. And what he also said was that, you know, more information is now accessible on the internet in one day than, than you, could, you could have found in, in, a, in a whole library. So, so what we see is when things go digital, awareness, awareness skyrockets. And sure enough, everybody's got a camera phone. Everybody, along, you know, along with reality TV, everybody can be a star for 15 minutes. And every, anybody could, my daughter is, it can put a YouTube channel on. My daughter who's 12 years old is, is on YouTube more than I am. And she, I think she's even got a vlog, but basically what I'm saying is it's accessible to everybody. So anyone can do it. And reptiles are pretty accessible to most people. And so why not, why not sensationalize and people like attention? Why not put the attention on? When I grew up, it wasn't. It was not the case. It was science-based. Um, you, you you had a very small community having outreach. True story. The Cleveland Zoo didn't didn't have a reptile collection. The, the The Cleveland Zoo had a reptile collection in the 1950s, which flooded. I knew the zookeeper who used to put the animals in his coat before, during the flood, and I, I met. Mike Ternakis when he was 93 when I was when I was young he was the zookeeper so after the flood in the 50s the Cleveland Zoo did not have a reptile department 
invite private keepers in July to their education building, and you would bring your snakes, reptiles, lizards, rattlesnakes. You, you could bring venomous, any anything you wanted. You would personally bring the cages. You would personally bring the animals. And they had what's called the reptile fair that lasted about a week. And it was open to the general public, but it was all run by private most mostly NOAA members showing off their collection. The public comes in, they've got cages in two different rooms of probably over a hundred hundred cages, and you had Gila monsters, you had rattlesnakes, you had gaboon vipers in cages without locks in some cases, and, and in cages where a child could pull off the lock so to speak it would, it would be more like a screw they could pull off the screw and, and and put their hand in a gaboon viper cage it was a different mentality now nobody ever did that there was never an incident um they kept the snakes if they had a snake out like for education they would keep it in the building they wouldn't go out to the public to scare anybody that might not like snakes so you had to come to to them but they but they would they ran this for years and there was never a problem there was People behave. They they looked at the animals very, very once in a blue moon. A snake would escape, and they'd find it the next morning. Or, in one case, maybe a snake was stolen. We don't know. But uh, but you had you had this kind of sense of decency with with reptiles, and the general public uh, behaved themselves. They, they'd have a large iguana, big big six foot, beautiful uh, Mexican, uh, not rhino iguana, but the green iguana that's got the horns called Iguana Iguana Renofa. Yeah. Uh, the, the Mexican, they, they had this big, big, beautiful male, six and a half feet. His name was Buddy. And he would sit on a pillow and, and he would he would stand up and people would come and pet the iguana. The, the iguana had 5,000 hands pet him in a, in a, a week's time. So, wow. so I, I grew up in that era where it was a little bit old school. It was people that had been through world wars and Korean wars and, and they, you know, they, they had, uh, I'll say that generation had a sense of, they kind of could gauge, gauge things. They had a sense of judgment. And so when they ran these, they, they kind of figured that, uh, people would kind of behave much better than they may, may behave today. Um, I forgot what I was going to say now. <laughs> yeah, but let's talk about, like, um, running out and scaring people in the public. Just uh, the last weekend, I had a little family uh, get-together at my place, and I had some family, like, come all the way out from California and stuff like that, and they really wanted to see some of the snakes I had. So, like, I got, like, uh, that Dominican Red Mountain boa, the male Dominican Red Mountain boa that originally came from you, way down, and people were petting it just fine. People were perfectly happy. Then I got my little juvenile Brettles carpet, and everyone thought that was ado absolutely adorable. And then my little cousin just walks out ho holding a drink. He just walks by, sees this little snake in my hand, and he literally jumps and drops his drink and throws it to the ground. And you just got to learn how to, I guess, filter those people out so you don't scare them too much. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I get people that don't know me real well and i usually don't i don't publicize all the stuff i do with crocodiles um very often i, I mean they can follow on facebook or instagram but you know i kind of do what i do I, 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 it's funny because I'll, I'll have grown it's always a, it, it's a grown man you know six two 
um, big muscular guys. Oh man, you, you, you can't do that. I'm, I'm frightened. I'm terrified of those things. <laughs> and, and I'll show them, you know, the, the researchers that are catching these alligators and crocodiles are like master students. They're, they're girls that are 20 in their twenties. They're 110 pounds or 115 pounds. And they're, and they're catching crocodiles, you know, all, week, all year long. And I'll say, okay, this is your competition. Here's a, here's a girl that, that's 26 years old. She's probably all of 118 pounds. And, and she's, you know, she's caught 15 alligators this last week. And I said, you know, why don't you, why don't you grow a set of kahunas? <laughs> I have no sound well, like, uh, you know, Jim? I have no sound like, uh, doing like education events like that. It's always the big buff dude that walks around like he could throw the whole entire room around. You see, he's like a little uh, corn snake in yeah. your hand, and he has a heart attack, basically. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it's, it, it's perception. Uh, you know, snakes. Worst case scenario, a snake bite is a few pinpricks. Um, yeah. Any any snake that's under six feet, you know, is 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 a few pinpricks. You, you run your hand under the sink under some water. You grab a paper towel, and and in ten minutes, you you, you could barely see any anything, and Maybe a day it, it's a little sore and then it goes away. A big snake is a different story, you know. A, a, a bite from a reticulated python and an adult anaconda. Not not talking venomous uh, snakes. Just a, a big python. Yeah, you, you could get some serious stitches and injuries. But for the most part, these are captive snakes. They're 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 used to people, um, and, and still, it's not anything like a dog bite. You know, a dog bite can kill a child, put a child in a hospital. Uh, it's always it's always perception with reptiles, particularly snakes, um, and then to some degree the larger lizards. But you you, you always kind of knew that I guess, or we, we we were always aware of that. So we we would never uh, back when we were, um, you know, with the reptiles, we would never present a reptile in public unless it was either well known that it was a show. Or they, they would have to come to us through a, a set of doors into a building. And, and so we respected, we respected people's uh, fear of, of, of animals. And we converted a lot, too. You know, we would have grandmas that never touched a snake in their whole life. Within 15 minutes, they would have a snake wrapped around their arm, asking their kids to take a picture of it with them. So, you know, fear is, fear is unknown. That, that's usually the root cause of fear. It's something you don't understand. And when you do understand it, uh, the fear usually leads to somewhat of, a, of an appreciation or at the very least, some, somewhat of a respect. So that, that was always a lot of fun when, when I was at the zoo and we, we would have a snake in a container in, in a certain area and, and, and we would have people that grew up in the inner city that never experienced this. Often, if they were truly afraid of snakes, they would avoid you completely. If they were truly afraid of snakes, they'd look at you and they would walk away, and you would never see them. And that, and that's completely, you know, that's completely fine with me. Uh, you know, I don't like Brussels sprouts, so I'm going to walk away from a table of Brussels sprouts. But what 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 does put the sparkle in your eye is if someone comes up and tastes a little bit of the Brussels sprouts and says, you know what? It wasn't as bad as I thought. Let me try. Let me try a little more. Same. Same with the reptiles. Uh, people come up and they, 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 they slowly. You know, they, they might touch, touch the 17 foot Burmese python at the tail, 
and they say, okay, that's enough, but it's not as bad as I thought. And, and that, that really was the, the part I grew up in. That was, that was the, that was the, those were the experiences. And sometimes, too, um, with reptiles like snakes and stuff, sometimes they're more bark than bite. Like uh, at the Kentucky Reptiles, we had these um, pine snakes that uh, didn't, they were kind of off. They weren't um, display snakes, and so they were kind of off. Not a lot of people. I was pretty much the only one that really interacted with them at all. Yeah. Um, and when I first when I first went in there, they would, um, and I'd go to clean their cage or whatever, they, they'd um, rear up, they'd flip their tail, make a loud noise, they'd hiss and everything. And they'd like they'd like pretend to strike at me and stuff, but like I could get right next to them. They they wouldn't really do anything. They just like make a big noise and stuff. And the the perfect but, the perfect snake that we would use that was always much more intimidating than it actually was. The perfect snake for that is an adult eastern indigo snake. <laughs> yeah, that's shiny black snake that that when it breathes it hisses. And we had a, we had one that was nine feet. Marty Rosenberg at Noah had one that was nine feet and one inch. You don't see indigos nine feet hardly ever. You see them eight feet, but we had a nine foot, one inch eastern indigo snake that we would have at the zoo. And you know the snake the snake makes noise when it when it moves. It breathes. It's black. It's intimidating, but at the same time, it is the friendliest snake you could ever find. And, and if you can get someone who, who's afraid of snakes or uncertain about snakes, and you can put an indigo snake in front of them. And that's why I keep indigos to this day. Now, I, I don't have Easterns anymore. I have the, the Mexican indigos, which look like Easterns. And I have Texas indigo snakes and yellowtail indigos, the, the Cribos. But, um, but the Eastern indigo snake was our go-to snake for converting people. And then the second snake we had was Lucy, who was a 16-foot Burmese python. And between those two snakes, that accounted for the majority of people getting converted. But believe it or not, the bigger snakes were easier for the people than the, than the smaller snakes. If you had a, a three or four-foot king snake or a small corn snake, they were usually much more skittish about a little snake, but more apt to, to actually touch a larger snake, and, and then that would, that would kind of soften it up. But yeah, the indigo snake, like your pine snakes, were, um, you know, very very scary looking if you didn't know it. But once, but once you start feeling the smoothness of the scales and the gleam, and and then they start to look at the the color of the blue in the sunlight, or or the Burmese python, um, the pattern, it, it 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 converted more people than it didn't. The um, the in eastern indigo snake is actually the first like snake I had like a meaningful interaction with. Yeah, and it was, it was a you know I was I, my I was actually in the woods um trying to find like tadpoles and stuff and my yeah. sister was walking back there and she screams, and uh, so I walk up and you know to it, it, eastern indigo snakes the largest native snake in North America Long, longest and, longest native yeah yes 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 sorry yeah, yeah longest native. native and yep. um, I this one was a big adult, and I so when I was a kid, I was like, this thing is huge, yep. and I was like, um, snakes are supposed to be dangerous. I was like, this is crazy, but it just sat there, you know. And and that's what really that's one of the things that really got me into the snakes and stuff is it just sat there, and it was like this huge snake that was supposed to be scary, but it just it, it didn't do it. Like you know, it, it was just really relaxed and stuff, and it kind of relaxed me a little bit. And I was like, oh, that's 
and you know, it got me like interested in like observing it and stuff. It was really cool. I couldn't stop talking about it for days. But no, absolutely. Now I have I have Texas indigos here, and and my Texas indigos are from a very southern part of Texas where they're very very similar looking to eastern indigos. They're bl- actually black with orange bellies. Um, they, in fact, I look at my Texas indigos, and and I'm really good at snakes. And even I say, man, that that looks like an eastern indigo snake. Now, when you take them out in sunlight, you can see the the black isn't as black as the eastern but did you know what the uh so i i know a lot of my latin names i i took latin in school so i i can speak a little bit of latin and and, and understand a little bit of the greek the the latin name for an eastern indigo snake is drymarkron and then it's now called drymarkron cooperi but in some of the older texts it's it's drymarkron choreus cooperi do you know what the latin uh, translation is for that the Latin and Greek what what it actually means it, it's a wonderful description of what that snake is Drymarkron Choreus Cooperi translates to Grand Emperor of the Forest huh. and that that's that's what the indigo snakes meaning is for for its scientific name that is like a perfect like apt description of it it's like a I mean that 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 perfectly describes it. <laughs> so, well, for example, if you were to say like a pine snake, um, um, Pitophus mel- melanoleucus, uh, mel- melanoleucus simply means black and white. Me- melon melon and leuca. Leuca is white. Melon is black. So, so a lot of these uh, a lot of these animals when when you you start understanding the science because a lot of times we we only use the scientific names. Um, but they, they have really really clever meanings. Occasionally they're they're named after a person. I, I actually have a butterfly named after me. It's Ornithoptera really? creosis uh, Wallaceiform botanari. Uh, I have scientifically discovered a certain butterfly. Uh, but the um, the dwarf crocodile I have Osteolamus tetraspis. Yeah. Uh, I, that means uh, bony throated, right? Osteolamus bony throated te- tetra meaning four, aspis meaning shield. So it's bony-throated, four shields. So when you look at the animal, they have a bony throat, and then they have four osteoderms or neutral bucklers on their back. And that's that's just a very uh, easy, easy uh, logical name for an animal. Like a black human being um, known as super snagger. Yeah, like the black human being known as super niger. Like, that's right. Yeah, that's right. The um, I, our my freshman year in college, the um, part of like the Gen Bio thing was learning all the um, uh, the uh, the etymology of a lot of words and stuff, and I always thought that was like the most boring thing in the world. But then once you started getting to more of like the Latin names of animals and the, and the scientific names and stuff, then I actually took a real interest in it because then, like you said, it was actually, it actually gets pretty interesting once you yeah. start learning what the names mean and descriptive features to them so for instance nate your your dominican red mountain boa yeah is is a red form of a of a haitian boa or a hispaniola boa yeah chilobothrus uh striatus uh translate to slender boa and as you see those boas aren't real heavily bodied they're they're kind of a slender yeah. almost like a rat snake in in build. Thick rat snake, um, yeah. so yeah that's that's a, a slender boa but yeah it, it it's all very um it, things have always changed. I, I, I like I like what I do with the Crocs. Um, 
it, it, it kind of keeps you a little bit in the reptile community a little bit, not not to the full extent of say some of the snake breeders, but it also keeps you into the zoo community. It, yep. it, it brings you into the private sector of, of eccentric people like myself that 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 like dragons that 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 want to be around creatures that are are strong and ancient and uh, scaly and and bigger bigger than life it it, it, it brings you into science it, it brings you into children's fascination it, and then it brings you into I, I go I wake up in the morning and I go down and I turn on the animal lights on and every morning I have little crocodiles singing to me chirping chirping so a repertoire of songs and um, there's times where I I'm down there cleaning cages on a, a Saturday afternoon and I'm thinking man I I think it'd be nice to go out and, and maybe so, go out and see some friends I says and then and then I, I'm hearing songs all day and I says oh it's, I says I, I, it, it, it's nice to have life full of animals full of people that you can share the experiences with and and to some degree I think it I think they they get a little it gets a little bit um, you sense a little bit of, of a spirit of cultures of ancient cultures and and you learn about so many things other than just these animals you you can you can go into the history of World War II and how these crocodiles um, on islands uh, you, you know people like the Japanese got got clawed and, and crocodiles decimated the Japanese soldiers on Romery Island and you can learn about that history which will take you other portions you can you can then go into Egypt and you can learn about the the crocodile god Sobek and and the people and then you learn about Egypt culture and history you you make friends down in um, places like uh, Australia and they invite you to go flying catch crocodiles and helicopters and go in waist deep swamps and 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 collect saltwater crocodile eggs via helicopter and all these things are true um and it, it makes it makes life so much more colorful and so much more mysterious when when we go through life with with these these animals and entities and 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 these experiences going and going off that thread and and kind of circling back also to what you're saying about fear because of like like obviously you have and like just the joy that you get out of like being with reptiles and just animals in general like i hear a lot from like psychologists and like the academics that like humans are naturally like innately fear of uh have a fear of snakes and reptiles i've never really bought that though just because well one i've never had that really so um maybe that's because but like i don't know i just i always felt like it was more people or like trained to be afraid of that as opposed to innately afraid of it i mean what do you think it it can be both uh we're probably innately afraid of the dark because even as little as two thousand years ago the dark meant you you're vulnerable to getting killed yeah you know we're, we're afraid of of predatory animals because even same kind of thing even a few hundred years ago you could be in a village and you can and well even today you, you could be in a village in the dark and a lion can grab you and pull you out of pull you out of your your hut in certain in certain countries in Africa and, and I think 
you know, uh, things that are small and fast, you, you probably have a cautious disposition that's enhanced by your culture, right? Fair. So, for example, the saw-scaled viper in India kills tens of thousands of people even to this day in India. It's a very, very, very dangerous snake. The saw-scaled viper or the Russell's viper kill a lot of people in India because in their culture, they go to the bathroom, they go out in the dark in a field, and they step on a snake and they die. And there's no antivenom. And so I think I think that's part of the culture, but it, 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 there's there's an element of being cautious as a, a primate, as we're primates, mm-hmm. of swimming in an ocean in the, in the dark. There's there's you know there's there's sharks. Children children recognize that. I mean, every child is afraid of the dark or of monsters. And so I, so there's there's always environmental predispositions as well as uh, genetic. Uh, predispositions because because we, we 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 survived you know our ancestors survived the um the wild animals they survived the other tribes that are warring they they've 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 been through periods of time for one, one, one quick example we know we're seeing mountain lions rattlesnakes rattlesnakes that don't rattle don't get found, don't get killed. Rattlesnakes have started in certain areas to not rattle anymore. Because hmm. if they do rattle, they get they get killed by collectors or, or the, um, the, the the ranchers or or the horses. If they don't rattle and they stay quiet, they go unnoticed. Uh, the similar thing with mountain lions. The mountain lions that don't go out and, and aggressively take prey aren't the ones that are getting shot aren't the, aren't the ones that the ranchers are killing so over periods of time there's, the, there's these there's these pressures and that starts to start looking like genetic instead of learning interesting so okay so you'd say it's probably like a little bit of a little bit of both I, I, I yeah I, I I do I do I, I see Look at look at any small child. Any small child does not like dark, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, there's a reason for that. I mean, the human species over time, the people that did like dark, you know, they might they might end up in the belly of of a tiger. Yeah. So so we have we have that to a degree. Now, environment environment uh, plays a, a huge role in this. But um, you know, if you're afraid of spiders naturally, or you don't like small things crawling on you, well, you know that's probably that's probably worldwide. And then, on the same token, even though we, we have natural fears genetically, uh, those fears can be alleviated by you, you know maybe a, a family in India that's a snake charmer family, and and so very early on they've desensitized their infants to. Uh, pythons and and snakes, so that that child does not look at those snakes as something that's uh, yeah. very dangerous. So, so it's it's a good question, and, and it's it's more of a um, you're, you're starting to get into more psychology. Yeah. 
you, and you also may you also may not be able to make a broad statement like that. You may find that people in certain areas, or even families in certain areas, like we see in, in animals, you know, there's there's ge- there's genetic differences, even even you know between myself and a neighbor down the street. And nothing nothing in nature is a carbon copy, maybe with the exception of a virus. But um, but what you you look in nature is you always see there's a lot of plasticity in individuals and in populations and and you look at that plasticity is it is it very very plastic like say the um say the population of california king snakes where you get different color morphs and sizes and 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 the the california king snakes on this coast even though they're, they're genetically the same as the ones in the desert but they're very plastic they're you could almost say that no two are alike versus um a snake that, or, or, or an animal that, that has a very limited amount of genetic variation, like a horseshoe crab. So, yeah, that's, um, good. So plasticity, plasticity in animals and, and even people, um, I, I always like to, to look at that and, and see, and, and we see that, we see that a lot in nature. So you speak a yeah, lot. Yeah, I think that's really, Go ahead, Matt. So, no, I was gonna say I think I think that's really interesting too. Is the plasticity? That's that's actually one of the big things I'm interested in. Is like kind of like niche, evolu- niche evolution and just the plasticity of different organisms and stuff and how they respond um, over time um, to stressors and stuff. That's like something that really interests me. So um, that's pretty interesting though. But yeah, that, that's a, that's an interesting take. I think that's that sounds about right obviously you can't you know <laughs> but well, that's really interesting well what, one thing that one thing that that's kind of cool so the so when you look at burmese pythons in the everglades when, when you look at burmese pythons in the wild they have a huge range they're all they're in vietnam they're in thailand they're in malaysia they're in sulawesi i challenge readers to google um burmese python national park and then pick a country pick malaysia and then pick another country like pick Vietnam. The Burmese pythons in Vietnam are much different looking than the Burmese pythons in Malaysia. Vietnamese Burmese pythons are large, dark, blackish snakes with a with a real block-like pattern. And back back before the 80s, that's all you saw in the US were these these Vietnamese mainland Burmese pythons, all the old snake books. Big dark black Burmese python, if you pay attention to it, that's what you see now. Vietnamese, they don't import them anymore, and they started importing Burmese pythons from Malaysia and other countries. Much different looking. They have a jagged pattern that, that's a much lighter snake. The pattern is kind of archaic. And all of the Burmese pythons that are in the Everglades came from a very, very, very limited gene pool of uh, snakes exported and imported from Malaysia. So your Burmese pythons in the Everglades are Malaysian origin Burmese pythons. If you were to look at the um, Thailand Burmese python, it's gonna look a little bit different. If you're gonna look at the the Vietnamese, it's gonna look a little bit different. If you look at the Cambodian, they're different. And if you look at the Borneo, there's Burmese pythons in Borneo, they look completely different. They almost look like an Indian python. Um, So it's fascinating. So so what you have is you have a a Burmese python from a specific locality and a very limited gene pool because they imported them and they they were kind of from a few, just from a few like gravid females. 
So these Burmese pythons have a, have a real close kinship with each other. I think that over time, maybe in our lifetime, maybe not, maybe, maybe you've got to go more than 100 years or a couple hundred years, you're going to see the Everglades Burmese pythons evolving differently than the Asian than the Asian snakes. Whether they're bigger and they have lack of predators, uh, you'll see. You know, so you'll see a, a bigger species as a whole, or whether there will be a predator and it'll start picking off the ones that are dark brown, but the ones that are kind of more olive green blend in a little bit with the grass. So, so they they do all right. Over time, uh, you probably will see maybe not in our lifetime, but you'll probably see the evolution of the invasives. You think it'll speciate into a different subspecies? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So... What were you going to ask, Nate? Yeah, so kind of veering off a little bit, uh, I know you post a lot of stuff about like the uh, Solomon Islands and stuff like that, so were you involved with like, uh, yeah. research there in the past? Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, the Solomon Islands is is a unique place in the world where uh, three species of sea turtles nest on a small group of islands within the Solomon Islands, and they nest 24-7, uh, 365 days a year. The the loggerhead, I'm, so, I'm sorry, the leatherback, not the loggerhead, the leatherback sea turtle, the hawksbill sea turtle, and the green sea turtle will all nest and so we do sea turtle tagging we tag the adult sea turtles and um, help the babies uh, along with the nature conservancy uh, get out of their nest and they monitor the, these sea turtle populations i also um, help remove problem crocodiles from areas where there's too many people and problem crocodiles uh, don't necessarily belong where where uh, tourists are it's not good for the crocodiles it's not good for the people you don't want to have any attacks so we uh we do remove in some cases we euthanize the crocodiles in other cases we relocate the crocodiles depending on the circumstance and then the third project is um we set up insect people that can um, insect farm and sell insects to uh collectors uh, dead insects but they can make money on selling the insects by raising them as crops and sell them for money to museums or private facilities in, instead of cutting down the rainforests. So if, if companies come down and cut the rainforest down and they get a little bit, little bit of money for timber, you'd be surprised like some of these big trees they might get $25 for. I mean, it's horrible. Um, if that. Sometimes they, they, they take an advance and then the company stiffs them and they get nothing. But, um, but if they could raise insects and they can sell an insect for $15, but they can sell 100 of them a week or 100 of them a month, it's a sustainable, it's a sustainable crop, so to speak. And so those projects in the Solomon Islands keep me busy. That's actually really cool. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Um, you can... You can uh, see that these um you know they can they can sell carvings they can sell these insects they can sell you know some of their local fruit and then their and then their forests are intact and the salmon people don't want their forests cut down um what what happens is it, it, it's criminal what happens is these asian companies will go over there and they will get the get the tribal chief drunk 
they'll they'll be their friend they'll start giving the tribal people alcohol and they'll give them alcohol to the point where they're drunk when they're drunk the people the, the companies will have them sign a contract from to give their forests away it, it's illegal but it's not enforceable so so you're, you're you're drinking with a guy he's giving you you know six or seven drinks of alcohol or beer you're not in the right state of mind he tells you you're going to get a lot of money if i can just take a few of the trees down you get this long contract you can't read it you know you're a native person you're not going to read a contract when you're in that in that state of mind you sign it a couple weeks later a couple months later bulldozers come in and and it's a legal contract and the companies have given the government officials bribes so um so that that's unfortunate what happens there now and sorry go ahead oh just when they realize that they they people feel sick to their stomach yeah what, what's really cool about that too is that it um a lot of times when like something like that's going on like um natives or whoever is cutting down trees or whatever and people want that to stop they'll sometimes they'll, they'll go in there and just tell them like do something else but like a lot of times they're doing that because they need the money or the, the reason that you know yeah. and so so what these companies promise is they promise that they'll they'll build them a house hmm. and they promise that they'll give them money after after the trees have been taken yeah. and they, 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 they never see a dime out, out of that money they might they might get half a house or they might get some timber for a house but but um most of the time they get they get screwed over pretty heavily now what's interesting is that um they've found that countries when they um once they're you know more prosperous then they can actually focus on like the environment and stuff so once they the un has found once they've gotten countries to a certain point they can focus on that stuff so and that's what you found in like the u.s india and china like the u.s has more trees than it's had in a hundred years yeah um india and china both have like 30 percent more trees in the past like hundred years so what happened the culprit is mainly china malaysia china usually 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 it's china is the culprit and and the way china operates is they they get these countries in debt um some in some cases they'll build them like a soccer a soccer field or a stadium and and they'll 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 get these countries in debt and the way that they can pay back their debt is through selling their land or or mineral And, and remember these countries aren't transparent so the prime minister could take millions of dollars in bribes and put it offshore. Uh, the president of Cameroon uh, was, quote, president for decades. Nobody could get him out of power. Well, he had like $140 million in Swiss bank accounts given to him by the Chinese. How does a, how does a politician get $140 million offshore? So China, China does that. The Solomons has actually just given China a whole island. They've given a 100-year lease. So the way the tactic is, is China, China has a very calculated strategy to extract the, the raw materials. Um, and and they, they can just bribe, bribe their way through it. Animal rights groups we saw in Ohio bribe every politician. How much, how much does it cost for you who really doesn't care about a reptile legislation to sign our, our legislation? 
Does it cost a hundred thousand? Does it cost two hundred thousand? Does it cost a million? Does it cost two million? A lawyer told me when I was a little child, everybody has a price. Yeah. So you just I... find the price. And that's, and, that, and that's what happens. Yeah. Well, Speaking of Ohio, I just can't make sense of a lot of their exotic regulations at all. Like, especially the ones about, like, large constrictors. It was all it was all an agenda with HSUS. Now, HSUS was friends with the governor and 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 how much money how much money did he need to sign the legislation and they just name, name your price I've, I've got a budget i'm hsus i've got a budget of 130 million dollars a year mr governor you don't really care about reptiles one way or the other you just want to save face right does it cost five million dollars for you to sign this piece of paper mr senator you really don't care. The, the governor's for it. The governor's in on it. He's part of your party. I'll, I'll give you a quarter million dollars. You just you just have to say yay instead of nay. That's all it takes. It's it's all it's all how much money does somebody have? And and we know politicians. Um, you know they, they 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 had all the facts in front of them. They had all of the facts. They had all the signatures that people opposed it. Um, just. They wanted to save face, and they they wanted the they wanted the payout. That that's that boils down to what it is. Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter. How much how much does it cost for you to sign this legislation? We have we have unlimited money, and 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 your boss is, is on board. That's what I was trying to in the the last two elections of people saying this guy's good, this guy's good. I always just tell him, it's like, all politicians are scum. Like, there's, yeah. there's no way around it. Yeah, they're, they're the same side. They're, the, they're, they're one side of an egg. Yeah. But it's the same yeah. egg. And, we, yeah. and I, I, was, I was in on that deeper than, you, than I would want to reveal on, 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 the, on the podcast. I was, I was involved with, with the senators from the beginning. Um, I didn't get up to the governor, but I was, I was pretty involved on that whole issue and and i saw it coming i said um i said there's no way there's no way that you know if somebody has unlimited money there's no way that that they're gonna let this go yeah just, just name your price and if you don't name your price we'll come back next year and we'll double it or we'll wait till you're out of office and we'll and we'll, we'll keep throwing it up against the wall you keep throwing it up against the wall with money and eventually it'll stick yeah well, South Carolina is a good example of that. Yeah, well, they um, my friend sent my friend lives in South Carolina right now. He yeah. sent me an article um, earlier this year of um, they found a tegu in South Carolina, yeah. and um, likely it was like a pet that accidentally escaped or something. But they're the article's trying to make this thing like because you know they're in South Georgia now. Mm-hmm. And, and so the article's trying to make this thing that they're all the way up in South Carolina, they gotta do all this stuff. I was like, there's no way a tegu survives in South Carolina. Like, well, it's in the winters. Actually, it could. Actually, it could. Okay. okay. Yeah, so, um, so Bert, Bert Lagendorf um, actually was a speaker. He was, he was a physicist, of all things. Great guy. He, he, he passed away. He, he was breeding uh, Argentine tegus, and, um, and he was breeding them in Alabama. And in Argentina, where they come from, they actually see freeze freezes. Uh, so if if a tegu can get underground, uh, and it just has to be a few feet, 
Um, they can they can survive freezing temperatures. Well, remember, look at the look at the color of a tegu. Tegu is predominantly a black a black yeah. animal. Um, I, I've had my diamond python when I was having when I had diamond pythons. It's amazing how warm and how much solar radiation a black animal a black reptile can absorb. So I took my diamond pythons out at 35 degrees Fahrenheit on a sunny day, and I and it was the diamond python was getting warm to the touch. I temperatured that diamond python at 90, 90 degrees on a thirty on a thirty degree day. That's how that's how much a, a an animal that's black can warm up. Do you, do you think it's easier when they're larger, like a like a large constrictor because yeah. it can contract muscles and. Yeah, a larger animal is going to hold more core body temperature heat, absolutely. But but an animal that's black or dark in color can absorb um, yeah. an, a sixty to seventy degree differential between the ambient temperature. Um, wow. Diamond pythons are notoriously good at that. Crocodiles, great example. There's uh, some areas in Africa where where they'll actually be uh, frozen uh, ice on on the lakes. And it's part of the Nile crocodile range, and there's probably photos on 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 Google, but um, you can look and see. There's actually Nile crocodiles sitting on the ice, warming themselves up, and that that I bet you that core temperature of the crocodile is is well into the 80s or 90s. Yeah, I think I saw an article on that recently. Yeah, when I was yeah. uh, work- so croc- crocs are you know, when I was working with uh, Chris Dieter, when I was interning at his place. He'd always tell about how he'd have Niles that would pop out of their dens at like 30 degree nights and they'd just come out and go like, hey, yep. where's my food at? Yeah, if it's, if it's not a rainy day and, and there's sun. Um, so I was up in Papua New Guinea uh, about six years ago studying Boland's pythons, the, the oh. holy grail of pythons. So I was in West Papua and um, I found Boland's pythons. We we went up there and at night the temperature is uh, pneumonia weather. It's I always say it's like high school football weather in November. It's sleety and it's it's like it's like between forty one and thirty nine degrees and and cold rain, sleet rain. I didn't know Papua New Guinea got like that. Yeah, up in the mountains where Boland's pythons come from, you you can catch pneumonia. Wow. So I have my Parma Ohio hoodie on, and okay, so at, at night at night. You got to be careful. You're not going to get pneumonia because it's it's so cold rain. You can freeze to that bone. During the day, it's like 90 degrees and sunny, so it goes from 40 to 86 degrees in 24 hours. Wow! And the Boland's pythons are pure pitch pitch black. You know, and they have really and their UV is real intense up there. You can get cancer um, because the the UV index is so high, but um, but the Boland's pythons are pitch black, and they they come in during they, they kind of go underground uh, during the, the the night. We found uh, I found a pregnant female in a, a big mammal couscous burrow uh, at night where she's she's kind of holed up and insulated because she's underground in, in in the dirt in the mulch. But during the day, you know these pythons warm up, and, and they only have to be out out there for an hour. Hour and a half, and, and that snake, that snake, even if it's forty or fifty degrees out, but sunny, that snake in in an hour or so has has heated up tremendously. Indigo snakes, same thing. If you, if you were to look for an indigo snake in the wild, you'll find them early in the morning, 
by nine o'clock in the morning, you're not going to find an indigo snake very readily. They're, they've warmed up their core body temperature near their um, gopher tortoise burrows, and they're already out cruising or, or whatnot. So, so reptiles, reptiles that are dark heat up real fast up. Another example, the black-headed python from Australia. Basically looks like a walnut. It's got that little black head. All that snake needs to do is put its black head out in the sun, and that, that's enough for that to raise the body temperature. That's really cool how, like, their um, body coloring, like, played a, or, or it played a role in, like, the them evolving. The, the body, their body coloring evolved through, like, um, I, I'm sure through, like, needing to thermoregulate. Like, that, yeah. that's pretty interesting. Yeah. So that, that and, and then along with that, you, you have animals that need to lose heat. Um, and they use all sorts of tactics, like chameleons will, will turn away from the sun spread out and, and actually actually lose heat light in their color uh, crocodiles um, lose lose heat by opening and gaping their mouth and, and allowing um, uh, that that to cool off them, themselves so you know croc, crocs tortoises reptiles they they, they kind of know within a few degrees what their what their ideal temperature is and uh, they're they're better indicators than than we are so when, when you keep animals in captivity, you, you know, give them, give them some areas where they can thermoregulate a warm portion, a cooler portion. You'll find, you'll find that if they're feeding, they're going to, they're going to hug the warm portion. If they're not, they, they may disperse over to the cool area. Yeah. I had a, um, I noticed that with one of my lizards, I, um, recently actually, I, one of the bulbs broke, so I went to go get a new heat bulb and stuff, but I accidentally got the wrong one, and it wasn't really emitting that much heat. And he yeah. wasn't, he, his feeding responses weren't that strong. Yeah. When I finally was able to get a, a, the, the right bulb and stuff, and it was much more warm, then, like, he, like, quickly snapped up. Like, his feeding responses were a lot stronger. Um, as soon as he finished eating, he'd go and bask in the heat and stuff. And, so. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So. Um. Well, uh, Nate, if you don't have any more questions, I think that's a good place to stop. Yeah, uh, hold on one second. I actually have a... I know, I know we've been here for a while, so... <laughs> yeah. Uh...